0: Between you and me, right where you are, right in this moment, is exactly
1: where you were meant to be.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome to the Joygasmic Life Podcast. I am your hostess, Elena Harder, and I am so glad to have you here today. If you are an awakening woman, conscious mother, a woman on a journey to bring about the best for your family and create an enlightened experience of being a child and a woman and a mother and partner in your world. I absolutely I'm so grateful and so glad that you have found your way here. This podcast collects not only my own personal stories, things I would have done better had I known better, but also the beautiful stories of many hundreds of other women and men who have been through the Consciousness Awakening journey, who are here to share their stories, to inspire you to know that you can recover from mental health challenges, from postpartum depression, from challenges with traumatic births, and just the life in 21st century, as well as beautiful, actionable tips exercises where we walk you through practical things that have really helped us and the journey of becoming a joygasmic mother one who handles absolutely every challenge with grace and ease and understands that everything is here to awaken her deeper to create more empowerment and more pleasure in her life even the challenging things so that sounds juicy listen up because we have got a wonderful episode for you today. Fully harnessing the joygasmic potential of your body and yourself. Anything is possible and especially we are here to tell you that deep and fulfilling love is possible and is available for you when you choose that for yourself. Welcome to the joygasmic life podcast. Today's guest is Hope Corbin. Hope is a survivor of intense postpartum illness or maybe a fairly normal postpartum illness as well with symptoms of insomnia, anxiety, depression, and rage. She is currently thriving now and well at four years postpartum and mother of a creative, energetic, and expressive son. On her journey to regaining her health, she has studied and researched traditional postpartum practices along with holistic women's wellness wisdom. As a postpartum educator, care provider, and wellness coach, her passion is supporting mothers and their families to feel prepared for, empowered, knowledgeable, held, and cared for on their postpartum journey. She wants to offer hope to anyone who's scared of or who's struggling with their physical and mental health postpartum. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook at Mother the Mother Project and on her website, Mother the Mother. You can also, of course, check out the show notes to see more information about how you can connect with her and her beautiful free offerings. Today's interview with Hope is a really a wonderful exploration of the journey of postpartum. We start with her story and how she got into doing postpartum work, some of the struggles and challenges that she engaged with, as well as the trainings and valuable resources that she engaged with that helped her to find her way back to mental health along the way. I share some of my journey and we talk about how it took her about two years and it took me about seven to find my way back and the difference between some of those things. We also talk about um, mother's needs and how it's so important to prioritize our own needs as mothers. The things that you need to put on your baby registry that you would never have thought about if you hadn't listened to this podcast. Um, the role of the nervous system in postpartum health and some of the ways that we can regain postpartum nervous system health. The lack of support in our current culture and the way that postpartum challenges have been become normal and something that people expect to happen, and the lack of support and why we have a lack of support from our mothers and grandmothers around uh, receiving the kind of support that we feel is possible and that we know of, and our role as conscious mothers in undoing some of the traumas that have happened and creating new healing for our families moving forward. We also talk about the village of support and how to create a community around you and also the experience of sleep deprivation and how that impacts our journey as mothers and some strategies for eliminating sleep deprivation by asking for support. Hope that you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for watching. And I've got some questions around like lack of support and trauma and like prioritizing your needs. I went through your website and that questionnaire that you've given me, I was just sort of like, oh let's let's see what we can expand and the idea is really to just create a conversation that is of value to other mothers who are in the situation that you were in and the situation that I was in, which is both part of depression, super common, super challenging. Um, and so, yeah, just create create a conversation that's valuable to us, just in the dialogue, sharing sister time and uh, you know, compassion, mutual understanding, but then also sharing things that are supportive for other moms who are coming along
1: along the way. Okay, perfect. Sounds great. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I love talking about this stuff, so.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's a really important topic, like postpartum mental health is a
1: huge
0: issue for mothers. And I mean, fathers too, to a certain degree, but definitely like the hormonal shifts and the, the identity shift that happens in becoming a mother is a, a really big deal. So, yeah. Why don't we dive in? And can you tell right. me a little bit about the story about how you got into this journey of working with moms around postpartum mental health and healing postpartum depression.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, when I was six months postpartum around there, uh, so my son was about five and a half, six months. um, I had thought that I was really like thriving before that. Although now as I look back, I can kind of see some of the signs and symptoms, especially of anxiety prior to that. And that's kind of a common theme that comes up with many of my clients is not realizing that they are having mental health issues until like much later on. So at about five and a half, six months postpartum, uh, I came down with very vicious insomnia. It would Hmm. go in about four day streaks where I just went sleep for four days at a time uh, yet I was super exhausted. Like I couldn't even keep my eyes open during the day, but I'd lay down to sleep at night and nothing, you know, like I was just wide awake and like that kind of wired, but tired, but wired kind of feeling. And it was, it was pretty unnerving along with it. I also was experiencing kind of like heart palpitations and things like that. Um, and, um, I think it was after The second time I even went to emergency anyway, that kind of just triggered this whole thing where I had this ongoing sleep disorder and then that triggered, um, depression and, and furthered kind of the anxiety that I was experiencing just because I was so sleep deprived and so exhausted. And of course, um, not knowing what was going on with me. And I had tried things like I went to my herbalist, was my first place I went to, and that helped for about two weeks. And then everything kind of reoccurred again. Mm. Um, I went to emergency, I think, the second time, just because I was like thinking that I was like having crazy heart palpitations. They said actually my heart was fine. Mm. Um, And they were just like, take some sleeping pills, go home, let your baby cry through the night. And I was like, I'm not okay with that. Yeah. It's like, I can't, I can't do that. Sorry. no. Yeah. So it, it just became a quite a long and deep journey, um, exploring lots of things in terms of complementary, like alternative medicine, natural medicine, as well as, you know, also getting to a point um, where I ended up, um, where I did reach out also to, um, well, my family very much encouraged me to reach out to doctors and a psychiatrist. So I did go that route for a short period of time, although I didn't find that Like the meds for me were, and I know other people swear by them, say that they really helped them. But for me, it was similar to drinking like a cup of coffee, although I'm not a Mm -hmm. coffee drinker, like it helped me get through. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, But I didn't feel like it was getting to the source of my illness. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say I don't really like the labels, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, I do think that um, I kind of call it my postpartum illness. I was definitely sick. I was definitely very ill, Um, but I believe in the body, heart, soul, mind connection and how it's all very much interconnected. So I was ill. I had an illness and my symptoms were insomnia, depression, anxiety, Um, sometimes sometimes rage um, as well, which I know a lot of mothers experience. And so this just sent me on a really deep dive. At first, it was to figure out what was wrong with me. What was going on? Why Mm. could I not handle motherhood? Why was I having such a hard time? Why was my body like betraying me in in these ways? And I definitely went into some very, very deep and dark um, spaces. Um, And um, it helped me to... Kind of start to realize the things that were actually helping me and were getting to the deep depth the the like soul root cause of this illness and some of the things i explored were um, nervous system healing um, i first studied that with irene lyon who's based out of vancouver and i found her work very useful um starting to understand Um, Trauma and stress, I further went on to study with Dr. Scott Leons who um, has developed a modality called somatic stress release, which is very similar to somatic experiencing, but also very different, um, but kind of of that vein. So continuing to explore nervous system healing and starting to understand what happens when someone is so stressed out that their nervous system becomes dysregulated. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I did a lots of sessions with acupuncture and Chinese medicine. I found that very useful and helpful, along with things like mindfulness and yoga. Um, but finally, um, thanks to a Facebook ad, um, I ran across my mentor uh, Rochelle Garcia Saliga, the founder of Innate Postpartum Care, and I took her course mm-hmm. in traditional postpartum healing. And that was kind of the final like cherry on top in terms of my healing journey to really understand what is physiologically required for women to be well and thriving in the postpartum period. And it's funny because it's so simple, but I think the biggest thing that I learned in that training was that there was actually nothing wrong with me, Mm -hmm. that um, I was having normal and healthy responses in my body to what I was experiencing Um, both internally, because there was a lot of uh, things out of balance in my body, like in my physiology, but also like the stresses I was experiencing, you know, in my environment, um, along with just things like loneliness, isolation, lack of support, all of these things. So it really, I know it seems really simple, but it was a huge like mindset shift to go at first being like, I'm broken. What is wrong with me to be on a deep search to, I mean, granted things were out of balance and yes, I did need healing. Um, but to go searching for what's wrong with me, why is this happening to me to make the shift to like, no, there's actually not nothing wrong with me. I'm having a very healthy and normal response to, to a world, to a culture that doesn't support mothers to thrive that doesn't honor mothers, that doesn't venerate them, that doesn't support them.
0: Oh, wow. Absolutely. Just so much of what you said, you're like, yes, 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 yes. Um, Because there is this you know, the, I remember coming across some traditional Moroccan mother care, sort of postpartum mother care. And it's like, the mom is absolutely surrounded by family members. There's always somebody there next to her. There's always somebody there with her. Um, You know, she's massaged and held and um, cared for and cooked by her family and her friends. And, you know, in traditional cultures, this was very normal. In our current culture, not very normal. You know, most people live you know, many hours away from their immediate family, from their parents, their aunts and uncles, that kind of stuff. And many people live alone in apartments or alone in a house with, you know, just sort of their, their, uh, nuclear family unit, right. Mom, dad, kids, maybe just mom and kids. And I remember I also had this sort of insight where I went like, Oh, like, cause I single moms for many years. And it was like, Oh, like single momming, it's kind of like walking across the Sahara with a baby in tow. And I'm just terrified that a tiger is going to leap out and jump at me at any time in in my nervous system. Right. This is when my nervous system goes like, ah, right. Because there's meant to be a whole tribe around protecting, like, you know, strong warriors who will fight off the tiger, you know, other, other children and moms who can, who I can share the journey with. And it's become so normalized, especially in this last two, three years to live in, you know, in a very isolated situation. And so, New motherhood really puts that into perspective in terms of our biological imprint, our physiology, what what our bodies are expecting, even though our minds have been socially conditioned to, you know, deal with and handle living sort of alone and on our own.
1: Totally. And I think that, that was a big part of what I went through. I think there was like so much like I experienced it as like fire in my system, but I think it was just so much like anger and rage that um you know it's a huge wake-up call because it's one thing for other people to tell you about motherhood it's one thing for people to say it's hard but oh i love my child so much so it's worth it but then to be in it and to experience it and to experience the ice especially the isolation like you said um and what you were talking about is there is this um, nervous system response. It's getting talked about more, but not so much yeah. in the past, the tend and befriend um, response, which is part of our social engagement system. And um, it's natural when under threat for especially women, from what I've heard, but I think it's in men and women, um, to look around for friendly faces, to hear soothing voices, to go like, am I okay? Yeah, and yeah. I think, um, motherhood, um, and taking care of a child, it's like, there's innate stress in it. And again, I think you're also, your nervous system is more, even more, um, finally attuned to like dangers and threats because now your primary job is protecting your little one. So you're kind of, your nervous system gets ramped up a bunch. Mm-hmm. So you're more on the lookout for threats. Um, and and you don't, if you're in your home by yourself, you don't have those supportive faces to just tell you, even if it's just a facial expression or a soothing voice to tell you everything is actually okay.
0: Mm. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think about my, my journey and I was always happiest sitting on the beach with lots of other humans around, right. That was sort of my happy place with my son. And sitting at home in my house was like, absolutely not my happy place. So we would make a point of getting out, you know, every day. So there, even if they weren't people, I knew there were people around, right. People who were in a normal, happy sort of like life space. Let's talk a little bit more about the nervous system and sort of what, you know, that, that isolation and what that does, and also the journey of maybe birth in relation to postpartum and the nervous system and some of the healing that you went through uh, and what you understand about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as innate postpartum care um, practitioners, we actually, as part of our postpartum planning that we offer, we actually highly suggest, and I always think it's a suggestion because I like mothers and families to feel like they are the authority of their experience, but we always Mm -hmm. highly suggest um, that mothers are not left alone for more than a couple hours. Um, on their own, especially for the, you know, especially for the early postpartum. But, you know, like I'd even like to think like the first year or so until because it's so isolating, it's it's not easy to get out and um, socialize and be around other people. And for Mm -hmm. example, um, I was living on a farm, which was probably part of it, like 25 minutes out of the city. And I had this innate knowing that um, socializing and being around other people was really good for my mental health. And yet the amount of stress that I experienced um, trying to, you know, get this baby ready to go out, especially, you know, I live in Edmonton, so it's very cold in the winter, Um, bundle them up and then think about nap times and when they need to eat. Oh, and now they're hungry and they're crying and you got to feed them. There was so much stress just trying to get out, like even to say a mom's group or Mm -hmm. anything like that, that it just counteracted the benefits of, socializing and, um, being around other people. So I think, um, so then I think what happens is a lot of mothers just like stay home, but then, I mean, isolation, isolation and loneliness is just like, it has negative side effects as you know, I know a lot of more people are experiencing right now, um, with COVID, um, but it has negative, um, side effects to it just in itself. Um, And just that can be depressing. I mean, when you're feeling isolated and, um, and as you also mentioned, there's the huge, um, changes that happen in motherhood, like, um, we call it matriescence, but the process of becoming a mother and, um, having to deal with giving up, you know, the freedom that you used to have and just like mm-hmm. go for a cup of coffee with my friend or do this or do that. And now you have to think you have to put your child first and think about their needs. And, um, or if you're not putting them first, you know, it's still, like I said, the stress that's inherent with getting them bundled up and going out. And um, that can just be really hard. Yeah. So I think a lot of mothers get isolated and just that, again, can be really hard and, and can be anxiety inducing
0: in itself. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I remember even, even cause you sort of resolved your postpartum depression. It sounds like within a year or two of your, uh,
1: yeah, it took me a couple of years.
0: Yeah. I would say that I didn't fully resolve it until maybe seven years. Right. So wow. it took me a lot of years, which is part of why I'm really passionate about working with people around this. Cause it's like, I know what it's like to, to sort of like, Wah! and like drag through it. But I remember my son being probably five or six and still being in that sort of like frozen nervous system position of like, I know that if we just like walk out the door and go to a cafe or a, you know, some sort of social space, we'll bump into some people, we'll have a lovely conversation, but to get out the door to actually... like, okay, we got to get clothes on, we got to get out the door, we got to walk somewhere like was just it's just too much. Right. And so I think there's a lot of benefit in, you know, before like in that pregnancy journey is really like, who are the people are going to come visit you? How are you going to do that? Um, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts around how trauma plays into our ability to actually navigate and handle all of this. Because I know, uh, one of the moms groups I'm a part of, Uh, a couple months back, we were talking about postpartum. And there were definitely some women who were like, I want people there. I want to have that help. And then there were other women who were like, nobody's coming near me for at least six weeks. Everybody better stay the heck away. My parents not welcome. My family not welcome. I'm going to pre freeze so many meals and I'm just going to do it on my own. And when I saw that, I was like, Ooh, like you know, there's something that my perception was there's something that's like so solidified into that, like I'm independent. I can do it on my own kind of like mindset that they weren't even open to receiving that help. And I got a, I got a bit of that too. Um, but my, my, my hope is for that this next postpartum that I'll, I'll be able to sort of like crack that open and be like, Oh, I am open to receiving help. I'm open to, to hearing that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on sort of how past traumas or how we deal with coping with stress can can really impact how we handle that postpartum period.
1: Totally. Absolutely. Well, and there's that saying out there, and although I don't think it applies to everyone um, that radical independence is a trauma response. And um, I think when it comes to postpartum support, um, there is a lot to think about. And I know that I kind of idealized the whole kind of baby moon idea. That's what we called it at the time of like having like, even if it was, yeah, like 28 days or something. Um, whereas just you and the, like the dad and the baby. And, um, I quickly learned that there, there are benefits to that, but there's also, um, there's a lot of cons to it as well. And just in not having that support and care. So, um, I do think that it is a it is a trauma response. Um, and I think also what a lot of um, mothers I talk to um talk about is again it's also the programming that we had that we have to be like strong independent women we don't we don't rely on anybody we can we can do this our mothers did it um some of some women um even get that dialogue directly from their mothers like well i did it on my own so it's like it's kind of like generational trauma of like mothers had to do it on their own they had to be strong um and so they think that that's like how things have to be done Um. And, you know, I think there's also always a little bit of terror of reaching out for support and then it doesn't show up. Mm. Now, another situation my clients often have to deal with is that, um, although we often think that like, um, the grandparents and the aunts and uncles, the family members are, are the best people to be there for support. Um, some people, um, have, you know, unhealed issues, unresolved issues with their parents, um, maybe, um, their relationship with their parents or their relatives are not the most healthiest. And it's really important that a mother, especially in that very sensitive vulnerable postpartum period where her nervous system is actually like extra sensitive at that time that she feels safe. This is like the number Mm -hmm. one, the number one priority is that the mother feels safe. And so I know some people have reached out to like their their parents or their relatives to come help and then realize that it was a really bad idea because those um, familial patternings um, were still coming up and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're feeling triggered and stressed out. And that's not, you know, like stress hormones in the milk and feeding that to the baby is like not what you want. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about the importance of having support but that the mother, I often get my clients really take some time to journal and really think about, and it sometimes, you know, takes having prior conversations and really setting really clear boundaries. I You do need the help. You do need the support. But who are you going to feel really safe with? And mm. like really safe where you don't feel like you need to clean the house before people come over. You don't want to be hosting people. That's for sure. I've had actually some friends go to emergency because they spent too much time in the early postpartum hosting people. So you don't yeah, want to be hosting absolutely. people. Um, you want to feel like you don't need to have a shower or smell good. And there is, you know, there's a huge, like you said, a huge shift in hormones that happens. Um, so, and there's a bit of an unraveling that happens. So you want to feel safe to also be really emotional and be, and be held in that and not have your emotions be pathologized or judged okay. in any way. Um, And the reason why it's so important that you feel safe is postpartum mothers, uh, especially breastfeeding mothers, but in general, uh, postpartum mothers have a hormone that is actually really on their side in terms of supporting their mental health. And that's called oxytocin. Hmm. Um, And it's such a wonderful hormone. It speeds up recovery. It helps them bond with baby. It supports lactation. Um, It does so many good things. Uh, uplifts the mood. It makes you feel good, but if you don't feel safe, um, or if you're really stressed out or triggered those stress hormones actually inhibit the release of oxytocin as well as I think the uptake of it into your system. And so then you're not getting that instead, you're running stress hormones through your body, which is going to do the opposite effect. It's going to create breastfeeding issues like lactate lactation issues. It's going to you know, take away from bonding with baby, all these things. So I do really encourage postpartum women to have people around, but they have to be people uh, that make you feel safe.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And li- literally from like a physiological perspective, the body is sort of either in that parasympathetic or the sympathetic, it's in fight or flight, or it's in, you know, feed, breed or rest, digest, friend, tend, like you said. And mm-hmm. so you know, if we're in that stress space, literally the body is using the nutrition that's coming into it to create stressors, to create cortisol, to create all like adrenaline, all of these hormones that would then help us deal with that high stress sort of dangerous situation, which means that it's literally not using those, that nutrition and that energy to do the breastfeeding, to do the, the tending and mending of all the vaginal tissues or the you know, bringing all those hip, the hip muscles back together the way they need to be and stuff like that, which is where we end up with prolapse and, you know, uh, hemorrhage, like hemorrhage multiple weeks postpartum, that kind of stuff, because we're not, if the body's not receiving what it needs, which is really like safety, calm, rest, sleep when the baby sleeps, all of those things, um, if we're if we're not getting that it it can be really really tricky to heal absolutely because like i i think about my situation as like oh it's like 3 days postpartum i'm like god i've got a website i have to finish for a client like let me get back on my computer i can baby wear and do work and it's like work i'm not really stoked about doing i'm just doing it to like make the bills work and it's like it's absolutely the opposite of you know good mental health support postpartum i do i'm like poster child for what not to do you know um, <laughs> but also, you know, the long journey of recovery and and what happens there. Let's chat a little bit more about sleep and, you know, what what is an optimal sort of from a traditional perspective, maybe from some of that innate training or what you've seen work with people, what is an optimal sort of sleep setup?
1: Yeah. So uh, I love talking about sleep. It's it's a big one um, that I'm passionate about because I do think, again, there's so many things that have been normalized about the postpartum and about motherhood that are very, very common, but actually not normal and not healthy. And sleep deprivation is one of them. Um, If you just even like, I did a quick Google search and I came up with all these memes, making jokes about motherhood and sleep deprivation. And um, if you also do a quick um, Google search about the side effects of sleep deprivation, like it comes up this whole list of things. And a a lot of those things we've also normalized are part of motherhood. For example, lack of concentration, uh, mood changes. Um, and you know, the list kind of just goes on and on. It can be like, oh, well, that's what we call postpartum depression. Oh, that's what we call, um, mom brain, you know, and these are simply just the side effects of sleep deprivation, but this is how we've normalized it. And, um, it's something I definitely work with my clients a lot on is, and I am very passionate about postpartum planning. So spending the time ahead of time. So prenatally to create a plan on how you are going to get enough sleep. Um, It's interesting because um, one of the books that was part of our training is from uh, a Chinese medicine doctor. And in, um, she talks about in Chinese culture, um, they have, um, what do they call them now? Um, I'm going to forget what they're called, but they're like, usually they're family members, but now they call them nannies who come and just like take care of the mom and take care of the baby in the postpartum time. And she, uh, this Chinese medicine doctor even encourages mothers to pump. And then she likes to see them get like 10 hours of sleep each night for the first week, uh, postpartum. I know. And when I read that, I was like, what, like, that's not very reasonable, (laughs) at least in our culture. Like, Um, but I do think it is important that mothers are getting as much sleep as they can. And there's definitely creative ways, um, that it can happen and, um, going without sleep and sleep deprivation is just a slippery slope for again, mood disorders and a whole range of actually, and also physical illness. Um, so there's things you can do. I find that for my clients, the ones that are most successful are the ones um, either that where the parents sleep in shifts and maybe some of my clients have had a lot of success with using uh, a passive pump, like a Hakka pump. I'm not a lactation consultant, so I can't really offer my advice on that kind of stuff. Um, but a passive pump to like collect some milk so that dad can offer a bottle in the night and take on like at least a feeding shift or something like that. If you are breastfeeding, um, Obviously, if you're doing bottle feeding, there's there's more options available. But it can be done if you're a breastfeeding mom. Um, there are night nannies and night doulas and night and night nurses that can also come help in the night. And sometimes they'll just do all the all the work, like come bring the baby to the mother if you're not post sleeping. Um, but even if you are, they'll you know then they'll take them and change them and and um, soothe them back to sleep and things like that in the night. So the mother's not being woken, you know, having to fully wake up, um, mm. and do all those things. Um, so there's, there are options from a traditional perspective. If a mother was having a hard time, not getting enough sleep, then there would be something, uh, somebody who would either take the baby during the day. Uh, so the mother just could go have a nap or would help with the night shift, mm. um, either through, um, Uh, being like a wet nurse or something like that so that was very common from my understanding in traditional cultures like we have this saying it takes a village and it really does take a village but we it's we've just so normalized that the mother is um the sole responsible caregiver you know both day and night and it doesn't have to be like that There, there are creative options and we have to adjust it for each family to fit what they need but um The ones that allow, you know, like the grandmother to come over in the night and take a bit of a night shift so that the mother can catch up on sleep or during the day so the mother can catch up on sleep. Um, They are often thriving the most. Hmm
0: hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned wet nurse, which is, uh, you know, another woman who's coming in and breastfeeding the baby, basically, which in a traditional culture could be anybody who's more well rested than a who's still nursing their own babies, who's more well rested than a brand new newborn mom, which would be like anywhere like three months, mm-hmm. six months, you know, up to like sort of three years postpartum is like, oh, hey, totally fine. And I've often pondered this, that, that you know, we have this idea is like my baby, my boobs, that's it right? And, and how different mother care could be, if we were willing, if we were sharing that in some ways, right? Or if, you know, like, because aunties who have still have older babies who are nursing, like could absolutely be in that place. When the generations were closer together, grandmas could be in that role as well. And like, what does that do to social bonding, right? Because the, the breastfeeding is such an intimate relationship. It's such an oxytocin release, like, oh my god, I love you, right? When it's done in a in a good place in a good Feeling state, And so what would that do to sort of the the familial bonding to have like grandma in that space? Obviously, at this day and age, you know, we're doing 35 years between generations, not 15. And so we've got, you know, it's much less likely to be happening. But um, just thinking like from a physiological perspective, from a historical perspective, like how much easier or how much more available that might have been. And then what are some of the things like you mentioned that we can do to sort of bring that together? to make it work for, for this current place. And I think there is this mindset. I mean, I know, I know I definitely had this mindset of like, I'm the only one who can care for my baby. Nobody else can like care for my baby. And so I, I just took all of that on. And it's like, it absolutely is not a great way to go about doing it because you really do get overwhelmed in the, in the nerves. And even if that's something like, uh, you know, postpartum doula, somebody who's coming in and, you know, during the day and will baby wear the baby and maybe give them a bottle once and do your laundry and your dishes and sort of like do that householding. If that's a paid role, or if you've got a good friend who can come over, who's got older kids and can do that kind of support. Like, absolutely. That's, that's the, like the minimum level of support that's sort of needed, um, because if you put all that work, all that householding work onto your partner, either A, your partner's going to be grumpy because they're not used to doing it, or <laughs> right? Or B, they're not doing it, you know, because they're just not that kind of guy or you don't have a partner. So then like, who's doing it, not them. Um, you know, it, c- it can be a lot for older children to take on. And so we really like, who are those people that are supportive friends or supportive paid people who are coming in to offer that help that, you know, from a village man- mind point, standpoint would obviously be there, but we have to really create that for ourselves. We really have to to bring that in and, and call it forward. And it can be tricky when we're in, you know, house boxes where the the mindset and the default is like all mine. Uh, I remember even when my son was eight, nine, 10, I found another single mom and we would do weekends together. We would just spend the whole weekend together every week. She had her kids every other week. So every other week, we would just do the whole weekend together and the kids would play and we would yammer about how tricky it was being single moms. you like, ah, so nice, you know? And it's like, well, we're not really like solving the problems of our life situations or our finances or anything like that. But just the being together, that fen- uh, friend and the friend and tend that you mentioned, is like, it's so nourishing and, and so helpful in that way. yeah, Totally.
1: Yeah. And, I, and it makes me think that um, there, I've seen a lot of memes and posts or even I think like blogs lately on um, like I love attachment parenting. I love the idea of attachment parenting, um, but how exhausted and um, burnt out some mothers are from really trying to stay true to the attachment parenting uh, model or philosophy theory and um, there's a really great book um, by CJ Snyder. It's called um, Mothers of the Village, I believe it's called. And in there, she talks about or what I got from it anyway, is that it's not meant to be attachment parenting. It's a be- meant to be attachment villaging. Mm. Um, and yes, yeah, so in, in, in attachment parenting, it's like my baby, I'm doing all of this for them. I'm going to really be attached to them. But it's to really stay true to the attachment parenting theory, it's too much for one person, even too much for two people. So in it, she talks about um, reading some research um, from different, I think they're like um, anthropologists who study different tribal cultures. And uh, in one of the tribal cultures, they'd actually have a ritual right after the baby was born to pass the baby around to the tribe. And the mother would encourage each member of the tribe to like smell the baby and like cuddle the baby. And again, like you said, get that oxytocin response going with the baby because then the, the uh, members of the village are going to be more inspired to protect that baby, to care for that baby as if it's their own, you know, even they might encourage other mothers, like you said, to like nurse the baby, but to, to bond with the baby. And, um, because we become such a fractured, uh, culture, there's a lot of fear out there, um, whether it's been spread by the media or by like personal experience and like generational trauma to allow ourselves to have other people take care of our children. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, and I think part of it is because again, like there's whether it's like this whole um, you know, it's the nuclear family, it's having babies in hospitals, all these things that create separation and don't create that initial bonding uh, with the baby, so I always talk to my clients because, you know, there are lots of complaints about from mothers of you know their relatives come over after baby is born and they hardly pay attention to the mother, and mm-hmm. then they just want to like hold the baby and cuddle the baby. So there's, and I get where that doesn't feel great and that you know and maybe they're not helping out and but there's also benefit there's also benefits to that happening too mm. to having them hold the baby and cuddle the baby and smell the baby um so it's just about having the conversations to be like when you come over you're also expected to like you know pay attention to the mother to care for the mother um, mm. do some chores around the house um, to not expect to be a guest and if the you know at the times when the mother needs uh, support, like when she needs to go have a shower, or things like that, um, then it's great if you hold and cuddle the baby, because that bonding with your village is also um, very important because people are more likely to step up down the road if they have that initial bonding happening.
0: Mm, mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that sort of the visual. I, I It made me think of like, we did have a, like all my mom, my mom's like work work ladies came over, you know, who had seen me grow up, they all came over. And we did this like passing the baby around thing. And I just remember being in that hostess mindset, like, God, I'm way like, I'm way too exhausted 13 days postpartum. And I now I have to sit here and like, pay attention to what everybody's doing and like check to make sure they're they're keeping my baby safe and like, and not in that trusting space. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder what it would really take to create that trusting space. And it's like, well, you know, women who are my peers, women who I had connected with personally. And a huge part of that is like creating relationships that are fulfilling sort of in that pregnancy period and and being in that. And I also had this image of, you know, you talked about how difficult it is to get out of the house to do like a play date. And he's like, oh, we'll will meet up at the park. And it's like meeting up at the park is really challenging. And maybe a version that might work better is like the mom with the oldest kid's you know, sort of walks to the fir- or walks or drives to the next mom's house and like shows up and goes like, okay, I'll help you get your kids ready. Oh, we're here. We're all going to the park. Then we've got incentive for the three year old. I'll help you get the baby ready. And it's like it's so simple to do. But when we haven't had a role model for us, when we don't know what it looks like, it can be really challenging to even. And we're in stress or fight or flight or whatever, being overwhelmed in that anxiety that you talked about or the depression. It can be really hard to think of those things and. What should we, what could we be doing differently? How could we create that? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit more about sort of this, like this intergenerational trauma of independence and our role as, you know, conscious moms shifting that and, and creating a new pattern moving forward and, and what you'd really like to see happen in that
1: Totally. Well, it ends up being a big part of my work, actually, especially when I'm doing postpartum planning and education and helping mothers and families. It's not just the mothers, also the fathers, if they're they're there. Or um, often I encourage my clients to bring their support team to the sessions as well. But especially for the mothers to um, support them to move through whatever they need to move through in order to receive that support. So just um doing the work to get clear on you know what your personal traumas might be and that might mean working with a therapist sometimes my you, you know i've ha- i've said to my clients okay you already have a therapist okay this is something that i want you to go and work on is your ability to receive support mm-hmm. um it's it's a big one or i have some journaling exercises that you know i have them do and and i just i i end up being kind of like a coach on continuing um to work with them. And um, one of like one of my clients said um, that uh, she was, because I primarily, especially with just postpartum planning clients, I primarily work with them uh, prenatally and then just a little bit after birth, um, just if they need support. But she was having some tri- troubles with sleep and she, because we'd worked together, she knew how important it was that she prioritized her sleep and that she gets things, some things worked out. So she ended up, um, going online and finding a course around baby sleep. And I don't, I'm not a promoter of sleep training, but there are lots of great sleep consultants out there that know how to naturally support like babies innately do know how to sleep. And sometimes there's just little things you got to tweak in terms of your, um, your schedule or your feeding patterns or um, how what you do in their room, just different, you know how how you're bonding and attached with them. Um, so she went online and um, booked into this course about baby sleep, and she said that she just kept hearing my voice in her head, like you need more support, you need more support. And she said if she hadn't heard my voice in her head, she probably wouldn't have reached out and gotten that support. And she said it would totally. Uh, was a big part of revolutionizing amongst a lot of the other work we did, but her postpartum experience was reaching out and getting that extra support around sleep. Um, But she wouldn't have done it if someone wasn't being like, okay, you need to open to receive external support. Mm -hmm, So it's a, it's a big one. And I see that, like, I'd say like a good percentage of my clients are successful in it. And then they have more thriving postpartum experiences. And then the ones that just I don't know, sometimes we have to learn the lesson over and over a few times, unfortunately, before we really get it. And so, you know, I'm just thinking about one of my clients, she just couldn't work through that piece about being open to receive support. She had, unfortunately, like a really, again, a a very challenging postpartum experience, but now she's on the mend. Now she's receiving the support she needs. You know, she just had to to kind of hit rock bottom again. But um, Yeah. yeah, that's a big one that mothers have to move through for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and sometimes, you know, uh in my work I like to talk about uh secondary gain. So, you know, for any sort of behavior we're doing that isn't actually really working for us, there's something that we're getting out of having it not work for us. And so, you know, that might be I'm really like I'm I'm so rock bottom that I'm sobbing every day and That way people can really tell that I need support because in my family of origin, unless I was sobbing uncontrollably, nobody was or in my family of origin, even if I was sobbing uncontrollably, nobody was coming to help kind of thing, that kind of level of stuff. And so then from there, you know, that radical independence comes forward. And so really being able to untangle all of those lines and go, okay, well, sometimes we have to hit rock bottom to go like, "Mm, this previous pattern that I had is really not working. And how can I do that? It is so powerful when we can hit rock bottom in our imagination ahead of time as a, as a conceptual thing, rather than a real life lived experience where we're like, ah, you know, because it's a lot harder to, uh, heal that rock bottom experience when we're in it. Right. It's like, do the, do the work before the labor before the postpartum, because it's a lot easier to do that work when you're not like up against the actual intensity of labor or of postpartum, you know, we have more focus, we have more attention. That's why it's great that you're working with people before, you know, in that, in that prenatal period, because if you're working with them postpartum, it's probably six months postpartum. It's like after that period really needed to be resolved in a different way.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And something else that I'm thinking about is that I think a lot of times that what a lot of mothers aren't realizing that is kind of like an undercurrent, like a deeper undercurrent underneath their anxiety and depression that they might be experiencing is this kind of generational trauma of like, where are the grandmothers? Where are the aunties? Where are the songs? Where is, where's the honoring of this sacred period? And I think it's like a, it's almost like this subconscious knowing and kind of yearning for, and maybe even crying out for, um, yeah. but we not, I think not everybody can, uh, for me, it became quite conscious in my consciousness. I was like, kind of like what the beep, you know, what is this? But I think for some people it's like, it's like, and it, and it, and I think it does go back like a few, a few generations, uh, and before, You know, there's a generation that remembers what that is, you know, because definitely I talked to my I talked to my grandmother and she's like, oh, well, that's just how it was. But then she talks Mm. about her mother, you know, living on the farm and and there was way more support and help and Mm. um, around
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think that it's really important to recognize that in, you know, this generation, I'm in my 30s, but like anybody who birthed, you know, whose parents or grandparents were birthed in that like 50s, 60s, 40s, like it was very common for those women to be unconscious, to have been drugged, to have been maybe strapped down, um and completely unaware of their baby's birth, and so that golden hour after birth completely disrupted the bonding process, completely disrupted. And so that like they don't necessarily have a a physical innate knowledge of what deep connection with baby is actually like many 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 of us you know are either daughters or granddaughters of women who had really like horrifically medicalized births that were very traumatic Mm -hmm. and so you know, that obviously impacts our birth process if we haven't dealt with it, but it absolutely impacts, you know, our ability to connect with our children afterwards. And we can do that work prenatally. We should be doing that work prenatally. It will improve our labor outcomes. It will improve our postpartum outcomes. Uh, And it's really important to be doing that work, you know, to create a healthier generation and to allow our daughters and our sons to really have thriving postpartum postpartum dynamics. Uh, when I talk to women about their labor stories, like absolutely the women who, whose mothers birth naturally are much more likely to have pleasurable or pain-free births. Ha- the stories we hear about those births absolutely impact how we parents, how we, how we labor, all of these things. The women who had, you know, who were born through cesarean or who had, uh, you know, very painful births, they have, you know, they have another layer, they have a, a heavier sort of load of trauma that they need to work through to get back to that physiological normal, which is a pleasurable, joyful, um, you know, very deeply bonding, transcendental birth experience. And it's tricky for people to even talk about, tr- tricky for people to even, you know, acknowledge that it's possible for birth to be painless and, and transcendent. It's like, so we, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. And and like you said, that 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 trauma in birth, well, first of all, like you said, my grandmother was definitely of that generation knocked out to give birth. Um, yeah. So absolutely, you know, that's creating not a great attachment style with her daughter. And then even though my mother did give birth to me naturally, I think that attachment style was still passed on, um, mm-hmm. on to me, like in our attachment. Um, and so then it can, takes, like you said, like a lot more work for more conscious women to be like, okay, well... I'm not going to just freeze or tune out or um, become numb in terms of like what happens after birth. And definitely it's not my story. So I'm not like a specialist in it, but definitely um, women who are experiencing traumatic uh, births definitely are set up to have more challenges postpartum. And so that's why it's even more important to do that work prenatally as well as to have that, That support. I mean, because birth can go, however, I don't think you can control it. Um, Definitely, there's things that can improve birth outcomes for sure. Um, But that's why it's even more important to have that support so that if you did have a traumatic birth experience, you can have the support to heal and recover um, in that very sensitive time afterwards as well, whether it's just physical healing from a C section or emotional, mental uh, support and healing, um, from having like a traumatic birth. Cause definitely, um, trauma is definitely not like pretty close to number one, to putting you at high risk for postpartum depression, anxiety, for sure. In yeah. my case, I didn't have, I wouldn't say it was a traumatic birth and labor, but definitely very stressful. Like it was long and very challenging. And, mm-hmm. and then I had like almost no postpartum support at all. Um, you know, and pregnancy and birth are just a huge work in themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. it's a huge task on the body. It's very depleting often. Um, And so all of that, you know, there's a huge loss of blood, all of these things and all of that stuff needs to get rebuilt after birth. Um, So to expect mothers to just be up and about, and like you said, like on the computer three days after birth is just, it's just crazy making. If someone went through a big surgery in the hospital, you know, they would have all this support to heal for weeks afterwards. And although it's not a surgery, it's still a huge physiological ordeal. Um, even yep. if it's even if it's the perfect physiological birth, it's still just pregnancy in itself, and then the birth. It's still a huge physiological deal, ordeal, and um, that takes recovery and healing, and um, and you need to be cared for and supported. So ideally, you know, I like to see like an ideal world and I don't expect this of most modern women, but I'd want them to be resting for a good four to six weeks afterwards. Um, These days I've taken kind of one of the old uh, midwives kind of um, sayings and what, how I've translated into those six weeks is two weeks in bed, two weeks on the bed, two weeks beside the bed. And I think that feels more doable for the modern women. Um, Even two weeks in bed for some of them are like, what, what are you saying to me? I have to stay in bed for two weeks. That's crazy Mm -hmm. talk. Um, But really um, this kind of extended rest period is so, so important a for just the body to heal and recover, to keep your stress levels really low, to nurture your adrenal glands. So they're not getting fried out. Um, And then again, for all the pelvic organs, the uterus, everything to heal and recover. So again, like you said, we're not experiencing things like pelvic, pelvic organ prolapse and pelvic floor disorders, um, incontinence, all of these things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I talk to women every week who are experiencing prolapse and you go like, well, what, what was your postpartum like? And it's like, well, you know, I was up and picking up my toddler the next day you go, you got to talk to those toddlers ahead of time and be like, mommy can't pick you up. You can absolutely come cuddle in bed, you know, and stuff like a floor bed instead of a, a tall bed. So the baby, the toddler can crawl into bed with you, you know, stuff like that absolutely makes a huge difference. And I love that two weeks in bed on the bed. What do you mean by all? like in the bed? I understand on the bed as in like,
1: so it means it? that just, yeah, on top of it. So, you know, like you're not <laughs> feeling like you're like, you know, you could be getting up and getting dressed, but you're still you're still spending the majority of your time laying down. So it could also be on the couch or, or, yeah. um, you know, like some of my clients even made kind of like a bed nest outside. So, cause getting fresh air and sunlight is still important. You don't want to be like locked in a dark closet kind of thing. Um, but yeah. they made little bit, you know, so you could be little bits up and around, but you're still spending the majority of time like laying down and resting. So yeah. like the first two weeks in bed, it's like you're tucked in bed, you know, like, um, but on the bed means that you know there could be some moving around, but primarily you're laying yeah on top of the bed, laying down. Yeah. And then two weeks ne- beside the bed or near the bed just means like you you've created the opportunity for you to go and rest whenever you need it. Um, yeah. And the bed's right there beside you and ready for that. Again, that can yeah. be the couch. That can you know, whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and if that means bringing in a bedpan or a jar or whatever, so that you're literally not having to walk down the hall or up the stairs or whatever to get to the bathroom, like that is a great idea. If that means, you know, making sure that somebody's bringing all your meals to you, that is a great idea. Um, I know that's like, I, I I can just hear the, la- the voices of the ladies, like the single moms or the whatever being like, are you kidding me? Like who's going to cook? The food. And it's like if that's going through your brain, like you literally and go, Oh, I really need to make sure there's somebody else's and a radical shift in terms of receiving. If you want to have a really different experience with your, you know, your second postpartum, if you had a really challenging one the first time, if you really need to look at like what did you do that was exhausting, standing on your feet, you know, in that first week or two weeks postpartum, three weeks, four weeks postpartum, it's like not a good idea for your organ prolapse issues, for you know, pee like and and if we t- we can just dive like really briefly into organ prolapses, like literally your like uterus and vagina like sinking out of your body because the muscles are exhausted from the labor, like and and needing to do six to eight weeks of like serious rehabilitation minimum to get them to go back up if you if you actually do end up in that space of prolapse, you know, closing the bones and having somebody come and squish everything back together, doing belly wrapping or be, like hip binding, like all of those are really helpful in terms of bringing all those organs back together. If you, you want to talk about like, I need to get up and be doing my parenting stuff sooner, but really like just from the conversation we're having, it's like, I need to get up and do my parenting sooner. It's like, no, you need to figure out who can support you sooner. Sooner, like before, you get to that place, right? It's like who can you call up? And generally, people are really happy to support with babies. You know, the human being has this innate like, oh, babies. You know, we want to smell them, we want to touch them, we want to love them, and and so you know, wearing a baby and washing dishes to somebody who doesn't have a baby, somebody who's got teenagers and misses that, like those are absolutely people to reach out to. And I think a huge chunk of that issue is also sort of this like grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, grade five, you know, we've, we've grown up in this very uh, isolated, like only our own age group sort of concept. So It's like, oh, we're in baby making phases. We've only got baby making friends around. It's like, make friends with people who've got teenagers. Those teenage moms are absolutely, you know, hoping for, you know, that they're, they're missing, well, it's assuming they had, they enjoyed their, their baby making. But even if they didn't, like, there's still something in us that goes like, oh, I want that. Where are the aunties? Where are the grandma- grand- mothers and, and bringing those back in and, and calling that in because kind of like oh there's a, an old like we just literally moved into a brand new house I've got six months to figure out my postpartum support network I'm in a brand new place right so I'm really thinking about this and I go okay there's like a grandma lady like th- across the street and three doors down who had her grandkids over I got to make sure I connect with her so that she can come walk over to my house and help me with whatever it is that I need. And it's like, what kind of relationship building do I need to do in the next six months in order to make sure that I have the ability to ask for that kind of support from my neighbors, the other neighbors, you know, all these people who are really close around. And then more than just people, it's like people that I trust and and building those kind of connections. Like, oh, that's like a major undertaking, but also I have the lived experience of knowing what it's like to not do that. And so there's a lot of motivation. Like, oh, I got to gotta do that. And I don't wanna, you don't want to end up in that situation that a lot of people end up either because of a traumatic birth or because of overwork, where the relationships crumble in that first year, you know, their their romantic, intimate relationships crumble because they're putting all of those pressures onto their partner or they're putting resentment because they're doing the work and putting that resentment onto their partner for not helping when it actually takes, you know, that village that we've been talking about to support the mom in that way. Yeah
1: totally and yeah you just kind of listed all the major fallouts of not having enough postpartum care and support absolutely. yeah, yeah. and I just wanna, I want to add that there you know there is a lot of benefit also and I know some people might have the mindset also I can't afford it um, but from hiring somebody who has the experience and has the knowledge of how a mother needs to be cared for in the postpartum, period. Cause yes, you can make those relationships and um, you can have your relatives or your friends come over and support, but often they're like, then you have to tell them what to do and all these things. And, um, and if, you know, if there is that thought I can't afford it, well, here's kind of a radical idea, put it on your baby registry, ask mm. for gifts of it at your, at your, at your baby shower or your mother blessing or whatever kind of rituals you have in your family culture uh, or your community culture that you do prior to birth and be open to having a fundraiser because mothers need to be supported. They are doing in my, in my belief, anyway, mothers are doing one of the most important roles on this planet, at least when it comes to humans, like we are proliferating the species, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's and it's a huge work. So they deserve to have that care and attention after birth. And I think there's there is a lot of benefits of hiring um, a postpartum doula uh, in innate postpartum care. We often call ourselves postpartum care practitioners um, mm. because their training does go a lot deeper than most postpartum doulas in terms of hands on healing uh, postpartum. Mm. But there is um, a lot of benefit too. And then you can, you can often interview, find somebody uh, that you really resonate with, develop that relationship and therefore sometimes avoid some of that, like, oh, having the in-laws come care for me, but you don't get along with the in-laws um, or whatever it is, or you don't get along with your mom and you're having he- her come over and support you. Um, and, and by hiring someone, you can also... You know, in my case, um, one of the things that happened is I witnessed how my family cared for my sister postpartum. So I just made a ton of assumptions on Mm. what kind of care and support I would have. I do remember my midwife asking me, like, how do you feel about your postpartum plan? I was like, yeah, good. Yeah. Like people are going to come over. Uh, Like my husband and I just thought that his mom would like move their RV beside our, our our home and like be there all the time. Like, I don't know, we had all these like fairy tale ideas about what would happen. And that was not the case Mm. at all. And even some of my um, friends had said, well, you know, they had friends make commitments to come over and care for them. And then stuff came up and they just didn't show up. Right. Um, So it sucks, but sometimes paying someone money You know, for that service means that you're going to receive that service and you're going to have that support as well as, like I said, the expertise and the knowledge. So the mother's not having to tell someone uh, because the mother load, as we know, the mother load, I didn't mean to say it like that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know good. what I mean? Like it's so the mental load of motherhood is so huge, right? And so that's the last thing that a postpartum mother needs. We need actually postpartum mothers to be more in their heart and kind of womb space and less yeah. in the mind. Again, that also supports the flow of oxytocin. When we get too much in our rational mind, it can also inhibit the flow of oxytocin. Um, so we want mothers more in that kind of heart womb space, that more intuitive uh, space, um, the more right brain space maybe, um, and less in the, like being the CEO of the family and having to like Mm -hmm. pull back from that. And again, like you said, like I do a lot of support with fathers too, because I've seen fathers, you know, have breakdowns and meltdowns, be overstressed. Um, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't help anybody out. Or Mm -hmm. I've definitely seen a lot of couples, like you said, divorce, breakup, relationship strain, uh, me and my partner have experienced that as well. So, having that support also for the father, so they also don't have to take all these things on, especially if they're still being like the main provider um, financially, mm-hmm. um, is really important that they have that support as well. Yeah, yes. that they're not the primary, primary caregiver. Yeah,
0: because the dad isn't necessarily primed or ready to move into that CEO of the household space either. It's like you know, and traditionally it'd be like the village, aunties, uncle or aunties, grandmas and all that jazz sisters. But you know, in, in lack of that, what are we creating? What 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 can we create? Um, let's dive really quickly because I love to talk about juicy intimacy after babies and what that looks like. Let's dive a little bit into the role of you know, having that postpartum support to help intimacy postpartum. Uh, be something that's thriving and nourishing and and what you sort of what you help your clients plan in terms of that, or what
1: right what well about. well, I do um one of the things one of uh, the pieces in the postpartum planning that I have is definitely um I have a relationship piece, and I have a kind of a whole handout worksheets that I that I hand them a lot of it. I did pull from, uh, I just want to give her some credit from the book, the fourth trimester by Kimberly Johnson. I love Kimberly Johnson's work. Um, but in her book, she talks about how, and I'm not going to remember his name, but there was a psychologist who, um, said in his experience, it just takes two 45 minute counseling sessions ahead of time uh, in terms of relationship work, um, to kind of, um, Prevent a lot of the relationship strain that can happen, and she says, mm. or you know, I've kind of taken the pieces of that, and she puts it in her book. So I've okay. made it kind of handouts for my clients based on a lot of her work and some of the stu- other stuff that I've pulled into it. And I encourage um, parents to kind of have like a date night um, prior to have these conversations. Some of it around intimacy and and the relationship, but also you know, like a big one that can be a big strain is just again is just like divvying up the chores around the house and not just in the early postpartum but like if especially if you're becoming new parents but like even in the later years um there Mm. needs to be kind of a new a new way of kind of organizing who's doing what chores around the house having it feel like equitable um, and fair um so i encourage them to have those conversations uh prior when it comes to intimacy, and then we definitely talk about int- intimacy in the postpartum. Um, one of the things is, um, it's, I think part of it is just honoring that there is a big shift in the mother, um, postpartum and in her hormones. So it's normal for a mother's libido to be a lot lower because she's, she is, uh, putting a lot of her energetic resources, her bodily resources into caring for the baby, whether it's, you know, through breastfeeding or just Basic care and love and attention. Um, mm-hmm. And then, um, and uh, this big shift in hormones to, for there to be more of the like prolactin, oxytocin, all of those things also lower the libido. So I just like to have partners be in the understanding of that. One of the things we talk about is the importance of, of fathers. Like, so if there is a partner or a father, um, that they're also doing skin to skin with the baby. So, and then the fathers and the partners will also have a shift in their hormones. So it shifts more into this oxytocin space of intimacy and connection and less being about sex. Although like everybody's different, you know, some moms will say, you know, I do feel really randy or whatever um, early on, but uh, I'd say more so than not. Um, mothers don't like they Sure. They'd love the cuddles and the kisses and the hugs. And unless they're feeling, you know, there's the whole feeling really touched out thing, which is mm-hmm. also can come up in normal, but they, you know, I knew that I was really into that, but i less interested in actual like sex and intercourse. So that's something that is really normal. So also if you have that postpartum support, then you can have more couple time as well, Mm. which can be important to keep that relationship um, healthy if there's somebody else to care for the child. Um, I'm going to forget. After, after, you know, after
0: sort of that bed lying in period, it's like, oh, we could go for a walk together and talk about what's going on in our lives. Or we can spend some time in bed together without the baby, which you know can be a really beautiful time. What does intimacy look like? You know from that very very love-based space it'd be really beautiful and really you know much more uh you know because of that oxytocin it was like much more of a tender space than say maybe like a like passionate love making space and it really depends person to person as well. Really? You were gonna say you were gonna say something.
1: Um yeah I forgot I was gonna say but I will say like we do encourage um one of the things we do encourage is that when fathers are working out of the home um that again, like I said, if then if they're working out of the home, their hormones will be more in their normal state. And so their libidos will be really high, you know, and that can often be a place of friction that comes up in relationships, especially in the early postpartum, or even within that first year or so. But if the father can come home and spend some time skin to skin with baby or cuddling baby or also cuddling mom, more in just that, that intimacy place, often their hormones will shift and become more imbalanced and aligned. So there's not that kind of disparity between libidos and um, interest in intimacy. And you can create that connection um, Hmm. as, you know, so you can enter back into the kind of cocoon space that mother and baby are in at home.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think also really important to note, you know, sometimes when the partner's working, out of the home space there is this like all you did was lie around at home all day and it's like uh you try doing that for eight hours like it's exhaust it's a it's a it's a huge undertaking not necessarily exhausting but it's like it's a huge undertaking to provide for somebody else's needs in that way and so to really honor it and acknowledge like how much work mothering is which is something that's pretty challenging in our current culture but super important. And then I think also really important in terms of intimacy postpartum is sort of the centering back into self. So a lot of people are entering in or have existed in intimacy in their lives from this place that like this person is satisfying my needs. Sex is a place where we, where we're like gratifying our, our own sort of physical desires and postpartum, especially this like psychological shift of, I'm responsible for my own sexual pleasure. So if dads are feeling really horny, they can do whatever they want to do, whatever they did before, before, well, maybe not whatever, but, you know, things that they did before, you know, they engaged in, partnered intimacy the with their partner and find ways to satisfy their sexual needs if they're not being met, um, you know, on, in a solo practice, or if you're in alternative relationship dynamics, I suppose, not in a solo practice. Although I personally wouldn't really recommend that in the postpartum, just because you really do want to be focusing on like, the the bonding of all of those people. I like what you said about it, but just also understanding. And for mom as well, like if she is feeling really horny, it doesn't necessarily mean that that need is going to be met in partnered intimacy, you know especially if partner's gone a lot during the day. It could be something that she's taking care of in her own space, or it's maybe more of a parallel process rather than a, you know, entwined uh, penetrative process. Uh, in that post in that immediate postpartum for sure and then you know later postpartum sort of once that vaginal recovery and is is has happened you know the loki has stopped and all the postpartum bleeding has stopped then really going okay and if there, if we're still struggling with connecting if there's struggling with connection like what are mom's stress levels like what are the you know, what are are their relationship issues? Has there been resentment that's built in in the time in between you last engaged in intimacy? How are you both wanting to connect? And if if there are disparities within those, like how can we bring them into a place that's closer together? And I think all the things you suggested in terms of that skin to skin contact and really maintaining that oxytocin cocoon is like super, super important to make sure that you're creating a good nest for that. Absolutely.
1: Totally. And yeah. And when I talk to moms, like a majority of the time, again, like all the issues just mentioned, but most of the time is they're just exhausted, you know, again, because most of them don't have um, enough support. And when you're exhausted, you're not, you know, your energy is not going to be interested in, in sex at all. And so, um, having partners be understanding and, um, and be open to just like, you know, cuddles and intimacy. I think that that's a big thing that every woman would just, And our mother would just love. Um, Another piece, actually, uh, Kimberly Johnson, again, has a great um, podcast on it. I'm forgetting the person that she interviewed, but it's really great about this topic. But they talk a lot about how also, and I think it's just a theory, um, but the theory is is that the baby, um, the mother is more attuned to baby pheromones, which also lowers the libido. And so Mm. it can what I noticed in myself is it can take much longer of a time to shift gears. Cause obviously Mm. as mothers, we don't want to be like have our libidos high around our children. Like that's not, that's not like sexually interesting for us. We're in a whole different uh, mode of being, you know, it's not appropriate. Um, And, and so just the pheromones of our, of our babies, our children, especially if we're bed sharing or any of these things, it just naturally lowers the the libido of the mother. And so it can take time to shift gears. So having again, that cuddle space with the partner where the mother can get more attuned to the pheromones of the partner, the father to re-engage the actual, again, physiologically the hormones that encourage the libido to come up. um, That can be really important. You know, so there might just be a period of time if a mother is really in that space, especially if they're doing more attachment parenting, it might just be that they're just not going to be that interested. Um, And I think that's important to talk about because I know I have one friend and she's just like, I wish somebody had told me that because she's like a very uh, sexually fiery, active um, woman, especially prior to having a child. And she's just like, I wish someone had told me that I was just not going to be interested in sex Mm. for like quite a while and so that i didn't feel like shame or ashamed and so you know that's why i want to speak to it so it is very normal again everybody's different everybody's but if you can spend time just cuddling with your partner uh i mean maybe even like wear their shirt i don't know like uh get attuned to their pheromones that can be a great way to get the libido going of course along with all the things you mentioned like are, are there, you know, relationship strains coming up in issues that need to be dealt with the resentments? Um, that's why, why, and a big one is often the disparity, uh, in terms of like household duties that can be like a yeah. big one that comes up. Right. And so having yeah. those conversations, if you need, again, if you need outside support, uh, get it to have somebody, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing wrong with you. If you need to do some relationship counseling, um, which reminds me I was just on this um I think it was the Instagram of a spiritual counselor and she was talking about how like none of us really have good role models for how to do relationships well you know Mm. in this time like we really Mm -hmm. don't Mm -hmm. at all so just not to be hard on ourselves if these relationship issues are coming up and uh, again to receive that support and that you know um you might have to learn, just don't expect it, it to be innate. And you might have to learn new tools and new skills and new ways of relating to each other, especially it's a big one after having a baby for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things I love to talk with clients about is chore play. So we, we all know foreplay sort of this like warm, cuddly, like soft intimacy before moving into the sort of more uh, rigorous sexual things, but chore play. And we we literally do this all the time in my house. I go like, if I know the dish, if I know the kitchen's a disaster, it is really ch- tricky for me to get into a warm, cozy, cuddly like I'm happy. If the room is a disaster, right? Women love beauty. They love, um, you know, they love to to know that the place that they're in is well cared for. And so, literally taking you know half an hour, an hour before moving into that intimate intimacy space and helping take the garbage, like take the garbage out. If, if a woman's like grumpy and resentful about the fact that she needs to take the garbage out on top of caring, the, caring for the baby and all of these other things is a lot trickier to want to shift into that intimate space. Whereas if the partner is really supportive and helping in those places, it can really be a way. And I find that men generally understand the idea of chore play. They go like, Oh, I do the chores. I get more booty. Ooh, that's a good idea. I'm on board, you know? And <laughs> um and so that can be really really supportive and like we said you know if mom's overdrawn and exhausted with all of the things that she wanted to get to today and really didn't get to the laundry the whatever you know and hiring somebody who can be in that support role is very helpful but also having you know later on in that postpartum experience having the father help with that kind of stuff can be really really supportive in we call it like clearing the the glass. Like when you first meet somebody, I got this from Kim Ami. It's like the glass is totally clear. You don't have any projections or ideas or resentments. And every time something comes up, you sort of like chuck a piece of mud at the glass, right? So if you've got stuff that's in the way if you thought grumpy thoughts towards your partner had these resentments throughout the day, all of a sudden you've got all this stuff on the glass and you can't really see each other. And the thing that attracted to you in the first place is is muddy and smeary and, and and that impacts your ability to show up to intimacy. So then you can you know take time to clear the glass, resolve those things, ask for what you need. Um, that's super, super helpful.
1: Totally. And I think it's just so important to remember that um because again when you have children it can be just so easy to get into the busyness of life. And things are often not as spontaneous after having children. I don't know your experience. So it, it might suck a little bit. You might have to like plan more those intimate moments. And then again, get the support where, uh, again, some successful couples, I've seen like they have one date night every week where they just know like that's their date night. They have their babysitter or their family member uh, coming over and, and they create that time for themselves. And it's important to schedule that in. Um, to maintain the health and wellness of the relationships, because it can be so easy just to get into the busyness of life, and then before you know it, the relationship is just like completely slid off the table and hasn't been nurtured. Um, so again, having those conversations beforehand on how you're going to keep the relationship healthy and thriving, and um, and again, if you need to do some counseling, like work work through any issues that have been coming up ahead of time. Uh, Because after you have a baby, you're going to be exhausted. Often parents are like more grumpy, more like more irritable, you know, everything can just become much more explosive, um, just with the stress of taking care of a new baby,
0: sleep deprivation. Absolutely. It's going to make everybody more volatile. So yeah. It's really good to be in a, in a good planned place. And you mentioned also, you know, sort of this idea of pheromones. I hadn't thought about that in terms of like baby pheromones versus like, sort of like man pheromones and, or, you know, whatever your partner's smell might be, if you're not in a same, if you're in a same-gendered partnership. Um, but being in that place and and shifting, and I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that we're, again, in sort of like, the first hundred, 150 years of this, everybody has their own bedroom. And prior to that, it was very common to have a single bed, single bedroom house. Um, you know, your children would hear you in intimacy. I think it's really important for our children to hear us in intimacy because then they understand these are the normal, these are the normal happy sounds of intimacy. This is how, um, couples interrelate Uh, and so if people have these very rigid like we must not be sexy around the children we must not be intimate around the children recognizing that that is a form of trauma that is something that you know very much came from this like puritan victorian upbringing and you know not everybody's going to be comfortable with uh having sex with the baby in the bed but if you are excited and you are interested in intimacy like if you've been in intimacy while you're pregnant, you've literally been having sex with the baby in the bed with you, they've just been inside your body. And so how much of it, like, you know, can you cognitively go like, Oh, we've already been doing this. It's like, not too weird to have them like, you know, sort of b- the side behind in the same bed, something like that. And so there isn't as much of that, like, you know, fr- friction. And can you be in a place of, And not everybody's going to want this, right? But can you be in a place of intimacy, and then have the flexibility and the flow to be able to say, oh, we were just in sort of like a passionate lovemaking moment. And now the baby is awake. And now we're going to move into like a cuddling moment. And that flexibility and flow. I mean, I think that's important for any lovemaking situation, because, you know, emotions come up. Uh, you know, past traumas bubble up and you're like, oh, I was really juicy. And now I'm like sobbing my eyes out. So having sort of those conversations ahead of time so that your partner can go like, oh, this is not the same sort of uh, very like linear intimacy that maybe they're used to. It becomes a much more flowy intimacy, but that the important thing is really that connection point and that connection time and being in that. And that it's not, uh, it doesn't make you a pedophile to have intimacy with your baby in the same room as you, if you're touching your baby sexually, that's a whole different ballgame. But mm-hmm. we're not talking about that. We're literally talking about just being in the same space, like you've been in the same space with the baby in utero. And I know that really freaks some people out. Some people, you know, their their intimacy stops when they get pregnant because the, the dads are like, "Oh, I'm gonna hurt the baby," or "I'm gonna like, you know, poke the baby." And it's like nobody's penis is long enough to go through the cervix and poke the baby. They're in an amniotic sac. They're totally fine, right? So there's lots of, there's lots of sort of stories that we've been told or that we tell ourselves that stop us from being in intimacy and doing the work to, again, unravel those during the prenatal period, being in a really juicy place in terms of your intimacy um, uh, pre-birth can, you know, and because I talk a lot about pleasurable birth, it's like, you know, how can we weave that in, you know, the prostaglandins and semen help get that labor process started. We're literally wired for you know that pleasure and that connection and uh, all the endorphins and the oxytocin. So it's just really shifting. I think a lot of it's shifting the cultural programming we have and moving into a place where we can go. Oh, we can trust our desires. We can trust our um, our body's desires. We can trust our connection and. And some of those stories we don't need to listen to. And we can just focus on like, what's really going on in our family and what it is that we're wanting. And at the same time, like if women are not interested in intimacy, and they need to take space, like, by all means, set those boundaries and like be in your own needs and what you want. But uh, I always like to invite women, you don't have to be the prudish mom that you were maybe raised with you can, you can have a really juicy intimacy life while also being a mom. They're not, you know, it's not that Madonna whore complex. It's like, you can literally be a mother and a vivacious sexual human being.
1: Yeah. Totally. Love it. Love it. <laughs> and uh, as my physiotherapist, my pelvic floor physiotherapist was reminding me is having uh, sex and intercourse is also like super healthy for the vaginal tissues and the pelvic floor, As well um and you know uh i'm in one because i am a bit older i'm in a group um, of more uh perimenopausal women and you know there's this whole concept if you don't use it you lose it and so as you get older you can experience things like vaginal atrophy again like prolapse um all of these things so it's actually super healthy also on a physiological level and in the healing of the pelvic floor again The first six weeks or so, depending on what kind of labor you had, you know, you know, you want to give that some space for healing, but, um, when you feel, when you feel from your own inner authority, uh, comfortable and ready to engage in sex again, um, then yeah, it's super, it gets the blood flowing in there. Um, it's just so great, um, for the vaginal tissues and the health and our vaginal health. So yeah. And of course yeah. our whole being health, you know, <laughs> like, absolutely. yeah,
0: it, Yeah. And, and, and I mean that vaginal atrophy, I, I, I remember hearing about that a while ago. There's a woman, Kiminami who talks about like, um, me, like uh, underfucked women, women who like don't have a capacity to like understand who they are as sexual vibrant women. I'm just like, Oh, there's something for me to hear, to learn here. Um, but vaginal atrophy, like literally like the, the muscles of the vagina have the ability to like contract and, and, and expand and and bring this sort of like hormonal, juicy, incredible matrix of muscles together. And those muscles are the same muscles that push the baby out, right? So if you're in a really juicy, if you're exploring your orgasm and your climax and the strength of those muscles in a really profound way during your, um, your prenatal period, you're prepping your body for having a really wonderful labor, you're literally like doing the strength training that your your body needs to do. And again, like you said, in that uh, perimenopausal period, a lot of women are dealing with prolapse or um, vaginal stagnation, or, you know, a lot of issues that are really resultant from having been raised in a really sexually repressive culture, and then not utilizing those muscles throughout their lives and it definitely has long-term health implications that you know sometimes people wait until their 50s to resolve but if you're listening to this you could absolutely work on it now and that involves pleasure and and that's a good thing you know pleasure is a good thing in our bodies it says you know all all is safe and well and we are happy and we have the capacity to expand in that and explore that I'm always I'm always up for that. Totally. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, you, you mentioned earlier, like our needs as a mom. And I'm curious if you have sort of a short list of what those needs might be that you see apply to most women. Um, you know, I know women generally, there's this sort of motion and movement of like self-care, self-love coming into an identity that like we actually do have needs as women and mothers. But I'm wondering if there's like sort of a thing you see in common between lots of women.
1: Okay. And do you mean more like early postpartum or just in general in motherhood? I mean, both if you're willing to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, definitely in the early postpartum, um, some of the big ones, of course, again, is like an extended having a supported rest period. Um, so being actually supported in your ability to rest is so important. Um, and, um, And, you know, I think each person's personal needs are different, but to take account of what those needs are ahead of time and to be able to communicate that to the people around you, whether that be, I kind of call it the village of support. So like your primary caregivers, um, whoever those are in the postpartum period, you know, and I think there's a certain amount of me time that, that mothers do need. And that looks different again for each mother in terms of what um, me time looks like, but definitely, uh, if a mother's, um, struggling from postpartum mental health issues is like getting breaks is Mm. a big one and having time where you can be with yourself. Um, and even, you know, exploring your personal issue, uh, not issues, sorry. It could be that as well, but your personal interests, um, your personal interest in the things Mm. that, that juice, like you said, like juice you up, make you more vibrant, Um, but, um, coming back to the early postpartum, like the resting supported time to rest, uh, is big. Having really nutrient dense meals is really important because there's so much depletion that can happen in pregnancy and birth. Again, just in birth, there's a loss of blood, but the body innately puts the baby first. Um, so if you're not getting enough nutrients in your diet, um, it's going to start to take that from your body. So there's a lot of replenishment that needs to happen. Um, and ultimately you are not the one making those meals. Like there's other people, maybe you've prepped them beforehand and put them in the freezer, but there's other people heating them up. There's other people serving them to you. Maybe they even are like spoon feeding you because you're busy breastfeeding, uh, the baby. So getting enough nourishment and in the space of nourishment is also like keeping your blood sugar levels, uh, you know, even so getting enough nourishment. Uh, I think one of the things that happened to me is when we're pregnant, we realize that we're growing a baby. Um, But once the baby comes out of us often, and, and this applies a bit more to breastfeeding mothers, but you forget that you are still growing a baby, even though they're externally to you. So you actually need more calorie input. It might not be a huge difference, but you still need more calorie input. Um, after you give birth to a baby, then prior. So making sure you're getting enough nourishment. You also need extra nourishment because you're healing and repairing all the tissues and organs in the body. Um, mm. And that, that energy, like you said, is going into that healing and repair. Um, so you'll need some extra calories and extra nutrients. Um, so that's really important. Um, we, we talk a lot about warming treatments. So, and that can be also like emotional warmth. And connection but also like um just like things that are, are warm are just are super healing to the body also helps with the flow of oxytocin and um body work body work is an actual need so this is something i like to talk about a lot it's not just a, a luxury um but it's actually like a biological need of mothers in the early postpartum we touched yeah. To be touched. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And whether it's just that relaxation response, like that's huge in itself, the de-stressing, um, but then also like the healing work of helping, like you said, you know, all the bones and ligaments and everything coming back into their, uh, normal state, um, and having support with that. Um, and that could mean like pelvic floor physiotherapy, uh, as well, as well, along with things like massage and acupuncture and cranial sacral and, um, but yeah, being touched, having loving touch, having healing energy happening. Um, I think it's important to note that that's an actual need, um, in the early postpartum and not just a luxurious thing. So again, prenatally put it on your baby registry, you know, ask for gifts of, of body work in at your baby shower, like put the mother's needs. What what do like most mums after they've had a few kids, like what do babies actually need after they're born? Cuddles, like,
0: love, <laughs> cuddles, diaper changes,
1: milk. Yeah, diapers, milk, love. That's it. They don't need all this other stuff, really, you know. But there's lots of things that the mother actually needs, you know, that especially in our culture, unfortunately costs money. Hmm. So um but yeah, mothers definitely, you know, and then coming later into motherhood, um, uh, you know, like emotional support, mental emotional support is a big one. Having having someone really validate uh, what's going on for you and hold, being able to hold space for you to unravel and unwind, uh, de stress, and someone that is really going to, um, again, like I said, validate what's going on for you without pathologizing you know, it's all in your head or, you know, you've you've got postpartum depression, you're just depressed, um, all of those things, you know, like um, emotions in general have been pathologized for a very long time. So it's normal and it's healthy and natural to be very emotional after, especially like in the early postpartum, but even up to one, two, three years um, afterwards. And um, And like you said, maybe Depending on how kind of burnt out you are, depleted seven years afterwards, and so I think it can be just so healing to have someone um, like really get what's going on for you and accurately kind of reflect that back to you in a healthy way mm. um, can be really healing. So having that emotional, mental support, um, yeah. and just getting breaks, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. All and of us. All, all of the things. other one. The other one is social connection, you know, yeah. is huge with people that you feel really safe with and that really nourish you.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All of those things. So important. And it's really good to, it's really good to hear them all in that, that, you know, all together like that. And I go, oh, wow. uh, You know, I don't really, I haven't built a baby registry yet, but absolutely massage is going to be on that now. They're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want that. (laughs) So yeah. Beautiful. Uh, before we wrap up for today, I so appreciate your time. Do you have any words of wisdom, you know, for moms who are in that early postpartum period, maybe struggling that, you know, what you wish you would have been able to hear at that time?
1: Yeah. So again, I think it's, it's, it's coming back to, um, the things I just kind of outlined around, around needs. Um, but it's around, um, the importance. First of all, the thing I like to really look at is like, how are you sleeping? Like really prioritizing the importance of getting a good night's rest. And if you think like, well, you know, I just have a challenging baby. This is just the way things are. Um, there are creative things that we can come up with to, to make sure that you're getting a good night's sleep. And one of the things I learned, um, Well, I want to say early on, it wasn't so early on, but what was that sometimes you have to kind of let go of your ideals and prioritize your health and wellness. Um, Mm. I believe it was Wapio who's an elder midwife in the States uh, said there are, there are ideas are great, but ideals are going to trip you up. And I wish Mm. I knew that I knew that. And I wish that I really listened to that wisdom um, because sometimes holding on to our ideals too tightly um, can really trip us up. And um there's lots of great ideas out there on, you know, the best way to parent your child and take care of them. And, you know, again, whether it's co-sleeping or all these things, but sometimes you have to do what works um, versus mm-hmm. what the ideal thing is. And the other thing would be the wisdom I want to share, um, which was the wisdom that a midwife um shared with one of my clients is you either pay for it now, or you're going to pay for it later. And, um, that sounds kind of harsh, but what I'm, what I'm speaking to there is sometimes we do need to pay for the support that we need. Hmm. And it might seem like financially, um, we can't do it, but everybody can get creative and Hmm. figure out a way, but sometimes you do have to pay for certain support. And if you don't, and Paying for it could look like many different things. So I don't want to mean it just means money, but um, investing, investing in whatever way in that um, postpartum support that you, that you do actually need and require versus um, having to pay for it down the road in terms of your health and wellness, whether that be your mental health or your physical health. Cause I know it cost me probably close to 10 grand in my recovery. Hmm versus I could have spent a few grand on a postpartum doula like yep. early on so that was yeah that's, that's like my little bit of wisdom like invest it's a it's a really important investment and a healthy mom is just going to be a good a better mom it's going to be the best mom you know and that's ultimately I do what I do for the children because mm. um there's lots of studies out there but I feel it's just like innate knowledge that um, when we're not well, like, it's really detrimental to our children, especially in those really vulnerable early years.
0: Hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate it's a bit of a tricky statement to hear, but that like pay now or pay later. It's like, You know, ten grand, at least that in terms of personal development courses, therapy, nutrition supplements. You know, gut healing, loss of work due to like my own, like incapacity that was caused by not having that the support that I really needed in that immediate postpartum, and not to mention time, years of life. You know, yeah, totally missing quality of connection, missing out on on really being in that like beautiful you know, I, I, I say like when my son was seven, I really clicked into that thing of like, Oh, this is the feeling of like mother love that should have been there right at the beginning. And it took me, you know, a lot of personal work and a lot of effort to get back to that place that, that should have been there right away. And if women are looking for, you know, how do I have a healthy family? How do I maintain my relationship, like prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, like absolutely. And especially in that very, very, uh, you know, tender moments of that birth labor and the immediate postpartum is super, super important.
1: Yeah. And like so many women absolutely survived the postpartum, but what, what about like thriving or, or what you call it, like joy gasming, you know, in in, <laughs> yeah. in, that, in that postpartum time, like how what would the world be like if that's how we spent those early moments bonding with our babies, being in absolute like thriving, blissful, you know, rather than than barely surviving or yeah. being in, in just survival mode.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I uh, hope I feel like we could go on for hours. I, and I would absolutely, I would absolutely love to have you come back and talk about gut health and supplementation and nutrition and what's really important in that in postpartum. Um, you know, we can schedule that in and I'd love to have you come back and talk about that because I wanted to get into that were so many other juicy things along the way.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. And I just, I just want to put it out there. I don't, I I don't know if you speak about this later, but I just want to put it out there that I do have a free uh, downloadable PDF on my website. And it's uh, the five things that you need, but you might not have thought about. Um, I don't know exactly how I worded it, but postpartum. And so I list the five things that I really think that mothers really need, Oh, that they need to put on their baby registry. That's what it is. So the five things that you absolutely need on your baby registry, you might have not thought about and included in that is also I have a holistic uh, postpartum supply checklist just so mothers have certain supplies on hand. I've seen a lot of those lists around, but because I come from a holistic perspective, there's lots of things that I think that mothers should have in that little basket beside the bed um, that they might not otherwise know of. Um, Mm. Yeah.
0: Great. I'm looking forward to checking those out. And then you have, you offer services one-on-one and you've, you've got an eight week course starting this fall, which I checked out. Can you tell us a little bit more about that before we wrap up today? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So um, I offer one-on-one sessions. So I don't want, I don't know if I should call them one-on-one, but myself with your family, because I, I like it to be more the than the mother, preferably the mother, father, partner, and then some other members of your support team. We can do private, mm-hmm postpartum planning sessions and education. Um, I also offer a, it's a five-class series called Innate Postpartum Care Planning for the Fourth Trimester. So that's a group class session of postpartum education and planning. And in that you get to make your own unique uh, postpartum plan, super essential for all pregnant people to really do that planning. Um, I, I do have on my website, the Thrive Program. It's still kind of in the works um, but that's a group coaching uh, program uh, for mothers who are, you know, missed out on the postpartum care and are struggling. So I'm still kind of working on that. I hope to launch that later this fall. Um, but I do also want to do uh, one-on-one postpartum wellness coaching. Um, I love working with mothers who are struggling and help them to get into a more thriving, healthy space. Um and then I also more locally, all those things I can offer virtually and online, but also more locally, I do offer hands-on postpartum care. So
0: you're doing that actually, like the showing up at people's houses and, and doing that traditional support. Oh, that's so beautiful.
1: <sighs> Makes me wish I was in Edmonton right now. Yeah. So most of the other things I offer virtually and online. So I can I can support anybody anywhere. Beautiful. Mm-hmm.
0: It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your warmth today and all of those beautiful topics that we covered. I'm so grateful for your wisdom, and also to hear your journey of recovery. You know that you did go through, you went through that whole journey that took me, you know, seven years. You did it in a much shorter period of time, and I really think that with guidance and with support, we can absolutely do that journey much much quicker than you know if we're doing it on our own, sort of figuring out what the pieces are bit by bit, and especially with something like the innate training. Um, you know, having those traditional wisdoms, having those traditional experiences, also in our toolkit, um, you know, or or in our Providers toolkit can really help speed up that process so that we're not waiting years to recover and we're not spending tens of thousands of dollars to recover. We can do it in a very reasonable price point in a very short period of time um, once we need. Yeah, it's really
1: incredible. And I really, I mean, something, you know, early on, I was like, I'm going to prevent any woman from experiencing what I went through. And I don't think that that is necessarily healthy or good or even necessarily possible. I definitely think that, you know, I can lower the people's risks of experiencing depression, anxiety, for sure. But there is, we didn't really get into the talk on matriescence very deeply. We can maybe do that another time, but I think there's a natural unraveling in the process of this transformation, this initiation into motherhood. And sometimes that takes a bit of a, like a dissolving, which can mm-hmm. be quite emotional and messy. And, um, but I think with support, uh, with the the right support, um, that that process you can really feel held in it, and it can be a lot easier and not overwhelming. And like in my case, it was it was traumatic, you know. And then maybe in your case too, like it was it was traumatizing to have that unraveling and everything happening uh, without that support and being held in it. And so um, I guess part of my prayer is just that that I help it be like you said easier and quicker. And um, in a supported way where you don't get traumatized by the experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, without a doubt, birth is a rite of passage. It is a, you know, a transformation from being a maiden to a mother, regardless of whether it's your first, second or 12th birth. Uh, it's a big transformation. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love, like I said, I'd love to have you back on and we can talk about gut nutrition and metriessence and that ber- sort of birth as rite of passage. I think that would be really wonderful to, to get into with you.
1: Awesome. Yeah. Beautiful.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today and your wisdom. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah. I loved, I loved our time together. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay. Have a beautiful day. Yeah. You too. In touch soon. Okay. Sounds good.
0: Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. How easily can you imagine that this experience is integrated already deeply into every cell of your being in such a way that you will begin to notice that you have already been operating from this new behavior for a while and that it was simply a matter of noticing how much you've already been doing this. You may choose to feel that this moment is the moment that completely and utterly into your body Or in the days and weeks ahead, getting curious about how fully and completely this experience has transformed your life, realizing that you are a complete choice to choose how you would like to integrate this information into every cell of your being. Thank you so much for being a part of the Joygasmic Life podcast. And I am so grateful to have you here and be a part of it. If you haven't already, head over to joygasm.me to check out our Joygasmic Birth Blueprint ebook and course, which give you all of the information that you need to become a Joygasmic Mama, whether you are postpartum or whether you're expecting your first baby. This course absolutely has tips and tricks for you that will help prepare you for birth prepare you for the birth of your next child and prepare you for peaceful and joygasmic mothering on the other side so Absolutely. The way that we do one thing is the way that we do everything. And so, by utilizing and beginning to build a practice of joygasmic alchemy, you will absolutely become a better mother and hold space as I am and as many, many women are for the enlightenment of the planet. We do that first by working on ourselves and then offering that support and that enlightened nature within ourselves to our families. And then from there, it ripples out. So, if you haven't already checked that out, go check that out now again it's joygasm.me we've also got courses on rescuing your relationship bulletproof mom how to be able to handle even the most intense toddler or uh, special needs child later on in life as well as a multitude of new courses that are coming out we're absolutely grateful to get to have you as a part of that and remember you, anyone who participates in the funding of the podcast absolutely gets a membership access which allows you to access the bonus features the ends of some of our episodes exercises from our guests as well as featured free content from them so Super glad to have all of you who are a part of that already here, and thank you so much for being a part of the Joygasmic Life family. If I could leave you with only one tip for how to be an orgasmic, joygasmic mama in this world, the invite would be to really step into and embody the knowledge that you are actually here for a reason, and that that reason is to be an enlightened being for your family. They chose you for a reason. They chose you on this consciousness journey for a reason. And you absolutely have the tools and skills to be able to do this if you're struggling, please reach out. I am more than happy to help people rewire what's going on their brain, create a new story and create a more powerful experience. So you can be the kind of mama for your kids that you really have dreamed of. You absolutely deserve it. And your children absolutely deserve it. I look forward to getting to know you more. And I look forward to co-creating through the membership content, have a beautiful day and we'll see you on the next podcast.